The scripture this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have been ceased to be offered, since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you guys can take a seat. Thanks, Shirley. Unpack that text. All right, Um, I have to acknowledge that we know when we set up a front row, it will not be used, but it's just so that, yeah, we should have set up a, (laughs) just keep a front row right here. Um, My name is Sean, if I don't know you, I'm the lead pastor, teacher pastor here. Um, I'm going to jump into what Advent is and all that stuff. I just want to let you guys know, I, I told first service this. Um, you know, normally I don't like say, hey, invite a friend to service or whatever, but tomorrow night we're in here for Christmas Eve. And I was thinking just in my own place of evangelism, talking to my neighbors about the Lord, um, I'm finding that there's still a lot of religiosity in our culture uh, to where you can almost ask somebody, hey, where are you going to church on Christmas Eve? And they almost like feel like, oh yeah, I should be doing that. Um, so I say that for, I say two things about that. One, you don't have to invite them to our Christmas Eve service. At least get their wheels turning. I think that's really uh, good. But two, use that guilt, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're feeling like, oh, man, maybe we should. It's like, yes, you should. Um, So anyway, and then they're here. And yeah, so uh, regardless of whether or not you invite them here or not, at least they'll go somewhere and hopefully hear the gospel. Um, I just have found that recently. So I'm just throwing that out there randomly. Here's what we're going to do. I know that some of you guys are new here because Christmas tends to be a little bit different because those of, uh, of us who are regular members here and attenders here, you know, I know a lot of people are traveling to go see family because it's Christmas time. And then some of you who are here are here because you are the family traveling here, which makes way more sense. There's very few places that are more beautiful than than Phoenix in, in the, the winter. So um, I'm going to do my best to kind of unpack the text that we're at. We've got a lot to unco- uh, uncover and address and all that stuff, but I need to give just a little summary of how we got here. Uh, so the four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, if you're not familiar with, are called Advent, which just means arrival. And what we're doing is we're taking the book of Hebrews and we're talking about how Jesus is better than the figures in the Old Testament. So the first week, uh, we lit this. That's why these candles are up here, these Advent candles. We lit the, the first candle all the way to your left, my right, was the candle of hope. And we talked about how Jesus is a better representation than Adam was for all humanity. Then Juan Chavez, a few weeks ago, talked about how Jesus ultimately brings the greater rescue. He's the greater Moses. We live in the, the bigger and better exodus, right? And then Juan, last week, uh, unpa- or uh, John, Juan or John, you know, I guess, um, unpacked uh, last week how Jesus is the greater rest. We see in the, the book of Joshua that he's leading the people into the promised land, which is rest. And Jesus has led us to the ultimate rest, eternity, and we get to live that out now. We don't have to live frantic lives. Well, this morning, we're going to unpack what love is, and um, we're going to talk about covenants and all that stuff. There's a ton here that, that we need to go through, and it's, it's going to be a lot of stuff. Uh, essentially, 
uh, the first week and then Juan and John, we all had kind of like a, a paragraph to cover within Hebrews. I'm going to cover Hebrews chapter 5 through 10, and I'm going to cover Leviticus 1 through 17, chapter 1 all the way through Leviticus chapter 17, okay? So I'm super jacked uh, about all this. Let me start with the first uh, language that picks up from where John left us off last week in that there's a greater rest. And then what happens immediately is the writer of Hebrews starts to turn a little bit and he begins to talk now about things that were not uncommon for them, but are pretty uncommon for us. He starts to talk about priests and sacrifices, and it's a little bit complicated. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter five, verses seven through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's a ton there that you're already going, I have no idea I don't have a category for some of this. Some of you grew up in church and you already know, like you maybe went to Rwanda's and you built like the outer courts and the inner courts with popsicle sticks and stuff. But I didn't grow up in that. So I had no idea. I remember reading the Hebrews for the first time and going, what is going on right now? So what I love about the Bible is it, it, it addresses you and I who are in those tensions, who have no idea. Listen to the next verse. This is what it says. About this, everything we just talked about, Melchizedek, the priests, and all that. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So there are certain things the Bible is allowed to get away, give, get away with, which should be the case, and I'm not allowed to get away with. The Bible just went, well, I would love to talk to you about real deep things, but you're basic, right? And, and your theology game is weak. And so I would love to give you food, but you need milk, right? And so this is, this is we have to go, you're right, explain this, because I have no idea what's going on. And so for five chapters... I mean, in perfect detail, the writer of Hebrews begins to unpack this crazy idea that we take for granted. If I was to say to those of you who are believers in this room, did Jesus save you? Yes. Did he die for you? Yes. Are you secure in him? Yes. I would just ask why. Why did his death and how he died secure you? Why did it save you? Like we believe that, well, there's, but, but where does that come from? It's fulfilling something. Jesus didn't just abstractly kind of a theory, just kind of come and I don't know, he died on a cross, it could have happened anyway. No, there was intentionality with what he did and it is all filling. And that's going to be an important word. It's filling what we see in the Old Testament. Okay. So John last week made the statement. The readers of Hebrews at the time, when the, the first readers would have known these practices, but we don't, and he's right. So let me just kind of catch us up to what we need to know and understand, and then I'm going to read a ton of different sections for us to get behind this whole idea, okay? So let's first start with something that we would agree with the original readers. There is a problem. Now, it doesn't matter if you're coming in here and not a believer, or you are a believer. It doesn't matter what worldview you have. We all acknowledge there's a problem. There's, there's, there's disconnect between us and the Lord. There's something not right. And here's what's crazy. You don't need to be religious to know this. If you ever wonder why it hurts when someone breaks your heart, if it ever wonders why, 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 like you cry when you lose someone, or even when you feel physical pain, hear me, you weren't made to feel that. 
You were not designed to feel that. And so you can't make sense of this pain. You can't make sense of this emotional turmoil. You're trying to like categorize it, but there's no category for it because you weren't designed to experience it. And so all you can say is there's something broken. There's something broken. Something's off. I want to get there, and and, and God understands this. He knows this, and we have a worldview, and we actually agree with the the Jewish people, the the people of God in the Old Testament. We agree with them in their worldview and where this brokenness comes from. We describe it as sin or evil. There's an evil, there's sin, and it's it's causing this disruption within our minds, our hearts, our souls, and it's, it's a brokenness that we can't fully explain at times. Now, because God wants a relationship with his people, he enters into this. And what, what we know of, uh, we see these kind of pockets with Adam and with Abraham uh, and with Moses and with Noah and with David. He, he makes these promises with them that we call covenants. Okay? And here's how this works. God says, there's an issue, so I want to fix this issue. There's this brokenness, I want to fix this brokenness. And so he creates something called the sacrificial system. And this is me summing up uh, Leviticus 1 through 17. Here's the sacrificial system. Because there is pain, because there is an evil, it has to be taken care of. So last night, uh, my uh, daughter Eve, our uh, second oldest, our our oldest daughter Eve, uh, she lied about something. And I heard her lie in the the other room. And she had lied a couple days ago. And I told her, Evie, if you lie again, baby, I'm going to have to spank your butt. Because she's on this little lying thing. And you look at her and you're like, she's so cute. And that's how they get you. Um... So, Evie, did you brush your teeth? Did you use toothpaste? Yes. And she starts crying to Candace, and I hear it. I lied. Why'd you lie, Evie? Like, okay. And so <laughs> I hear her from the other room go, Daddy's going to spank my butt, okay? I go, Evie. She's cr- she comes out crying. I go, let's go in your room. And I sit her, here, sit her down, and uh, we've walked our kids through a lot of this, and, and I think they understand as they begin to kind of shape their worldview what's going on in this moment. So I, when I spank my kids— it's okay if you disagree with spanking. I disagree with you. But um, I, we sit our kids down. I say, buddy or, or sweetie, this is why you're going to be spanked. you understand? Okay. And then I spank them. Well, I'm sitting there with Eve, and we're talking through this. And I'm going, baby, why'd you lie? And she goes, I don't know. And she's walking through this. And I begin to unpack what lying does. And what lying does, and this is just a very simple way for her to understand it, but for all of us to understand it at a bigger level, in that moment, she is speaking something that shouldn't be into existence. Do you understand? Like, quite literally, what she is saying isn't part of reality. And so she's speaking something that shouldn't be there. This is evil. This is sin. She, in this moment, spoke something, and now there's, there's this thing that, that is broken. And, and here's how we can understand sin. There's direct effects of sin, and there's indirect effects of sin. So when, when someone steals money from you, the direct effect of it is that they need to pay you back, right? They're, that's a direct effect of sin, that they stole something and you, you feel. But there's also indirect effects of sin, in that now uh, you don't trust people. Or at large, our culture knows that there's other people like that person out there who might steal. There's these indirect indirect parts of sin. Well, even this moment, she had direct and indirect parts of sin, right? Well, baby, we trust you and all that. And so I explain, I go, so now that that exists, it has to be stomped out. It has to be taken care of. We can't just let that exist. I know and she's crying. And so I say, okay, so now I'm going to spank you. So what I do is I did this to Corbin when he was five. Um, and I hold out my arm and I say, now, now there has to be a punishment, baby. There has to be a punishment. And I bet, Whip, lift up my hand, and I smack my arm twice as hard as I can. And I mean, it was real hard. I told Candace later, I was like, that really hurt. Um, and I go, baby, look at me. You brought something 
into the world that shouldn't be there and it had to be taken care of. Daddy took the punishment for you, okay? I took the spanking for you. Do you understand what Jesus did? Do you understand how you did this, how he did this? And she's still trying to process, well, what I'm doing in that moment for her is I'm speaking to something that the Bible calls atonement. That in the sacrificial system that Jesus or that, that, that God gives his people, as he says, there's sin in the land, and there are direct effects of it, and there are indirects. And, and, and what we see in Exodus is God calls this polluting the land. That sin is finding its tentacles in all these different ways. And so God says this, something has to be punished. And we don't fully understand why God does it this way, but he says, in this moment, blood being shed will atone for this sin. And so a priest brings a goat or a bull or birds and sacrifices these animals who now take the sin of the people. And, and, and even more further from that, there's one day a year, which we're going to talk about here in a second, where there's a day of atonement where the high priest goes into the most holy place and lives this thing out. So here's what's important uh, uh, for this. As Hebrews talks about what I just summed up there, this atonement, that something needs to be sacrificed. There's a system where when you sin, a bird needs to be sacrificed. When you sin, a goat needs to be sacrificed. This system is in place. What Hebrews does is it says that these things that are in place point to Jesus. So what I just unpacked points to Jesus. And what Hebrews does is it says there's two things you need to understand in the sacrificial system. There's a priest and there's a sacrifice. So there's this priest who performs these rituals in the sacrifice. So let me, let's just read both of these. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, just unpacking Leviticus 1 through 17. Again, this is what it says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently... Uh, with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer, uh, offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when uh, called by God, just as Aaron was. So there is 12 tribes of Israel. God says one of these tribes will be the ones who offer the sacrifices, the Levites. And so now these people who are appointed by God are the priests. So that's who we have the people offering the sacrifices. And then this is what they do. And if you grew up in church, this is where some of the popsicle stick models start to, to come into to play here. Um, skip all the way to chapter 9, which if you're wondering why I'm doing that, he's going to talk about Melchizedek, which I'll try to unpack at the end if we have time. All this, this stuff, but I'm trying to sum up here. Now we have the priests. We know who the priests are. One of the 12 tribes of Israel offer sacrifices. This is what they're supposed to do. If you weren't confused before, get ready. Verse 2. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all the sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the, ta- the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So in the Old Testament, this is, again, I know we don't know this like, oh yeah, I know how this works, but the readers did. And imagine a building this size and there's a curtain running down half court. And as, as uh, the priest comes in, he's able to offer sacrifices in there. There's kind of, it's not a good language, but there's these relics that are in the story, the people of God's story. They go in and they can offer these sacrifices, regularly offering these sacrifices over and over and over. 
But once a year, on the other side of this curtain, this is the holy place. On the other side of this curtain, there's this most holy place. And once a year, a priest comes in, and this is where we get verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This is called the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest goes beyond the curtain. He offers first a goat for himself so that he can offer a second goat for the people. This is actually where we get the term scapegoat from. Um, That he offers a goat, and now in this moment, he can offer a goat for the people for unintentional sins. And this is called the Day of Atonement. Now, this is where I get super nerd out, okay? Because this is why I I love theology when things begin to connect. Check this out. So now the writer of Hebrews is going to say, you know that, which maybe we didn't, but you know that, that's how it works. I'm telling you, every single one of those steps refers to Calvary. All that we talked about is describing what Jesus did. So listen to this, if you don't believe me. Listen to verse 11, chapter 9, going on. Listen. So we just talked about 1 through 7, right? What the priest is supposed to do. Listen to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without the blemish of God, or I'm sorry, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. That's a lot. Let's unpack it. This is what he just said. We have two key players in this. We have the priest and we have the sacrifice. And we have a building that's all supposed to be there. What the writer of Hebrews is going to say is, these things were meant to point towards something better coming. Jesus, as the high priest, comes in as the priest and offers a sacrifice. But he's not just the priest, he's the sacrifice. And it goes on to further to say this in chapter 7, verses 22 through 27. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many a number because they were perverted, uh, I'm sorry, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We're going to come back to that text. Let's go back to 9 at verse 15. It says this, therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's keep going because you're already confused. I might as well just finish this out. Verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. Of cha- this is chapter 7, verse 25. Those who draw near to God through him. At the end of 27, it says this. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Okay, whoa, here we go. Okay, Jesus does not just come as the priest. He does this not just give himself as the sacrifice, but there's a problem. The, the Old Testament people tried to fix the disconnect and the problem with the system that God had given them. But the priest would come and offer a sacrifice, and then a year later, he would have to come offer a sacrifice. And then a year later, he would come after, and then a year later, and then a year later, and then eventually that priest would die. And then a new priest would have to come offer another sacrifice, and a new one, and then he would die, and over and over and over for hundreds of years. 
So the priest and the sacrifice would be over and over and over. But Jesus doesn't just come and fulfill the role of a priest. He doesn't just come and fulfill himself as the sacrifice. But now he is the most high priest and he gives one sacrifice forever. That he comes eternally and he fulfills the sacrificial system. He does it fully. And this is why in our text, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to uh, share this. We're going to read this text quite a bit, but the beginning of it is important. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Let's stop. There's a lot here. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that that Old Testament way of trying to fix the problem has failed. It's, It's not permanent. It never was meant to be permanent. But the Old Testament people continue to go to it to fix the problem over and over and over. The problem was it was a shadow. It was a shadow. It was not the true form of what the reality was. And so um, this last fall, a great way to think about this is this last fall I read the book Unbroken. Uh, It's the story of Louis Zamberini, which... As a family, we ended up watching the movie, and of course, as always, the movie's never as good as the book. We, we, I ended up reading this book, and there's this part where Louis Zamperini, uh, he's a, he, they, their plane was shot down, and he's with two other guys, and they're on a, a raft uh, for 42 days without food or water, okay? And they end up surviving crazy ways. I mean, just rain coming at the right time. They try to eat a shark. They catch a bird. I mean, crazy stuff. And they're continuing to lose weight over and over and over again. And eventually, what Louis Zamperini does is he realizes to keep his sanity, they've got to continue to hold on to hope for something else that's to come. And so he begins to tell, um, like 10 to 15 times a day, the way his mom used to make a certain pasta dish. Like his, 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 the, the guys who were there go, Louis, tell us again. Okay, well, so she would take the dough and she would roll it out. She would cut it and then she would make these little raviolis and she would stuff them. Like, yeah, and then he'd be done an hour later, hour later. Louis, tell us the way that your mom made the pasta over and over and over again. And, and the language of telling the story of pasta did not fill them. It, it did not, like, get them there. But it gave them a, a hope of what will be. And this is what the people in the Old Testament had. They had a problem, and they tried to fix it, as God gave them this way, with this shadow. It was, it was temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. And so we read, let's read our text, and let me try to unpack this again as we just did. For since the law, let me read out of the NLT, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifice under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, and they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifice would have stopped for the worshipers would have purified, would have been purified once for all and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually remind them of their sins year after year for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, put it on your thinking caps. This is a lot this morning, but this is where I need you to connect the dots. The blood of bulls and goats was just a shadow of who Jesus was going to be. It was, it was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to fix the problem. It was only a shadow. The blood and bull of bulls and goats was never meant to fix the problem, and the blood of bulls and goats was a shadow. Just logically connect the dots with me. We can then discern shadows were never meant to fix the problem. 
If the blood and bulls and goats, the Old Testament sacrifice system, was never meant to fix the problem, and it was just a shadow, shadows were never meant to fix the problem. Now, here's where we get to us. The Old Testament people of God saw Jesus come their way. They saw the reality, and they wanted their shadows. They rejected Jesus. They had the reality in front of them, but they wanted their bulls and their goats. They wanted their shadows. They wanted the dim preview. They didn't want the substance. They didn't want the reality. And so here is Jesus, them rejecting the reality to hold on to the shadow. And you and I can sit here all day and say, that's great, but that's not me. I'm not like doing that on the contrary. Take, take, um, take a, let's take a woman who, um, She's been trying to date around for like a couple years. And she hasn't been single in ever, as long as she can remember. Say she's mid-20s, 30s. And she continues to go from one guy to another guy. And for whatever reason, things aren't clicking. She continues to try to find. Now listen, it's a good thing for her to try to find someone to spend the rest of her life with. That's what she wants to do. That's what she feels like she's called to. This is a good thing. But for some reason, she continues to have these men and they continue to fall short. Now, even though it's a good thing, as I have had the opportunity, and you may see certain, in certain uh, times in these stories, this girl is looking for something beyond the man. There's something more that she's trying to find. She's trying to, to fill something that ultimately can only be filled with the substance. She's grabbing onto shadows. She, she's continuing to go, and hear me, the weight of that, she doesn't have security. She doesn't have the substance in which she goes, I'm okay if I'm single for a little bit. I'm okay if I'm alone for a little bit. She doesn't have that. And so she continues to try to find the substance in these small shadows. And Lewis says it, C.S. Lewis says it the best. He, he says this, every one of these objects for the desire is inadequate. That when we try to find the ultimateness in these things, hear me, it's good to want a family. It's good to want a house. It's okay to want the promotion. It's over and over. These things are good. But if you find your identity in them, you miss the advent like the Old Testament people of God. If you continue to look for the shadow and grab on the shadow, you're like Mary and Martha running to the tomb looking for the living among the dead. This is why Jesus says to the woman at the well, you're here, you're here for water, but I can offer you something that will never, ever, ever have you thirsty again. You're not, it's like, and, and here we are, we're grasping, just like the Old Testament people of God, we've got our shadows. We've got our shadows, we're good with our shadows. And yet over and over and over again, we're not filled. Now, we can shake our head all day, but this is where the, the, the trick in all of this, we can go, yeah, that's, that's it. Like here we are, we're trying to hold on to the shadows. We like the old, like as Jesus runs into the, the, the Jews in the, the New Testament, they don't want Jesus. They don't want the reality. They want to hold on to the rituals. In the same way, here we are holding on to our shadows, even though the substance is better. The substance will ultimately fill us. Yes and amen to that. The problem is we walk out of here and we still continue to live it out. And so um, I, uh, Candace and I just finished uh, a book, 1984, which it sounds like I read all these books. Those are the only two books I've ever read. Um, so, uh, we, we, well, Candace finished 1984. I got about 20 pages to the end of the book, and I stopped reading. And I will not finish it. I can't finish it. Um, if you're not familiar with 1984, let me ruin it for you. Um, and it was written like 80 years ago, so that's on you if you haven't read it yet, okay? 
Orwell writes this book about the future. He writes it in the 40s about the future of 1984. And in this future, Orwell paints this image of the government controlling everything. The government has eyes everywhere. And you're supposed to do exactly what you are, are, are told. And, and you're supposed to live a certain life. There's a removal of emotion. So many movies have been like, uh, come out of this. Equilibrium, V is for Vendetta, um, Eon Flux. We're looking at all this list of all these other movies came out of this idea. Now, here's why this is important. Um, amidst reading 1984, um, Winston, who is the, uh, the main character in this book, continues to talk about this thing called doublethink. And doublethink is essentially this. You know that the certain so-and-so or whatever it's happened in the past, but the government says it happened this way, and so you have to act like it happened that way. So uh, the government says we've always been at war with Eurasia. You have to believe, even though you know two years ago, Two years ago, uh, the government was telling you that you were at war with Europe. You now have to act in such a way. We've always been at war with Eurasia. This is called doublethink. And, and he begins to wrestle with doublethink because he's watching history being changed in front of him. And he goes, but here's what the government can't do. The government could never be in our mind to tell us two plus two equals five. Like we could always know Two plus two equals four. No matter what they say, facts are facts. And he's amidst people who are continuing to buy what the government says you believe. There's a point in the book where um, they reduce the, the chocolate ration to, to, by 20%. So like, I don't know, a gram a day or whatever. And so the, the next day, not even 24 hours later, the government says, well, we're going to up it to a gram a day. And he's like, wait a minute, we just decreased it to a gram a day. What do you mean we're going to up it to a gram a day? And everyone just buys it. They live and have um, taken hold of doublethink. Even though they know it's true that they reduce the chocolate to a gram, they have to live, they have to talk, they have to act like that's true. They know it's there. And the reason I couldn't finish the book is because I'm definitely going to ruin here. Um, at the end of the book, uh, Winston ends up getting captured because he, he tries to get uh, part of this coup. And uh, O'Brien, which I'm definitely ruining the story for you here, um, O'Brien has him on this torturing uh, table. And he continues to go, Winston, what's two plus two? He goes, four volts. Winston, what's two plus two? Four volts. (laughs) Winston, what's two plus two? What what do you want me to say? Two plus two is four. I'll, I'll say five. Just please stop. What's two plus two? It's five. It's five. No, 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 Winston. Volts. See, what O'Brien wanted from Winston was not just for him to say two plus two is four, that, that, or two plus two is five. That's great. He wanted him to actually believe it. And this is where I had to stop reading. I couldn't take it anymore. Because eventually what, what was happening in the book was Winston being tortured. And it was like causing some serious, like, I couldn't sleep. Because I'm reading this story of this guy who knows something is true. And it's, it's crazy how this is connected to reality. He knows it's true. Even though he knows it's true, in his mind, because he's so scared to be electrocuted and, and, and put in this vice, he, he begins to change his, the, the wiring of his mind to actually believe two plus two is five. He's tortured to such an extent that he believes the lie. He accepts doublethink. Hear me. You know Jesus is the reality. You don't need me to tell you that. You know that the, 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 the thing you're looking for is not going to be found with that friend group. 
That certain amount of money, that person, that guy, that girl, that friendship, it's not going to be if you had this certain way of life, a different spouse. You know that. You don't need me to tell you that. You're well aware of that. You just want blood of bulls and goats. You want double think. You want shadows. And so we live it out over and over, knowing what the true reality is, all the while living this certain way. And Jesus offers himself again and again and again in love. But he doesn't just provide a way. He also tells us and diagnoses the problem and gives us a way out. But let me leave you there. I'll unpack that tomorrow night. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Um, help us, Spirit, too often we're choosing the blood of bulls and goats. We're choosing the sacrificial system. We're choosing shadows. And um, our, like the, the throne of our heart is meant to have you sit on it. And, and here we are trying to fill these gaps and trying to grasp for this mist. And it's just, it wants more. It wants more. It wants more. And we give ourselves away like a harlot over and over and over and over again. Help us. I pray for security in the gospel of Jesus Christ for every single person in this room. I pray that there would be um, the ability to be obedient and bold, to know that they are cer- like firmly secure in your hands, that you are holding them tightly, and that you are the great high priest, that you are ultimately the sacrifice, and you have fixed the brokenness that's there. I pray against any type of scheme of the devil that we try to fix that gap and that brokenness with men, with women, with jobs, with money, with gossip, whatever it is, power, control, help us. We're trying to fix the problem, but Jesus, we know you can and you can alone. Let us not just know that to be true. Let us live that out. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.